0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Crisis of Faith with Joe and Drew. Am I supposed to say know. something there? <laughs> uh, you can, sometimes you say your name because usually I say myself first, but uh, I was, I was actually just going to say it's not just us today. Uh, it's going to be a really special episode. Uh, we're they're all I don't, special. Exactly, I don't exactly know. No, they're really not, Joe they're not only the current one (laughs) is special um i'm reading a book about uh living in the now the this of it all so really only the one that we're currently doing is special Uh, i don't even i don't know i haven't gotten to this chapter yet i don't know if it's still special after it's recorded when it comes out well Um, it's special for the listeners then it's special for them then all right so yeah this is the most special episode on the planet uh i don't really know where all this conversation is going to go um, I have no idea what kind of jingle that we're going to roll out right here uh, It's going to be heavy. real dark <laughs> It's going to be a real dark jingle uh, we <laughs> might, I might throw a minor chord in this week <laughs> 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 which is not my game uh, but uh, let's roll that out and then we'll come back into the studio
1: mm. Richard could you answer a question that no one Can't explain. Well, I can check the internet if that's what you want. I mean, I checked once, but maybe I'll look again. But it won't mean a thing because the options all are pretty out there. If God made a dude and somehow made a gal out of that dude, is that really weirder than if he just found her? Yeah.
0: Joe, do you want to, like, start with introductions and stuff and then...
2: Oh, yeah. My Gwendolyn lovely and- wife, Gwendolyn, is here with us today.
3: To talk about her mental
2: problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Totally have- unrelated to her being married to Joe. <laughs> they were there before I, before I found. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so should we-, we... We got a question from a listener... Uh, do you have that? Do I? Maybe we shouldn't. Were we going to do something else first?
0: Well, yeah, let's do that. Let, let's, we, let's start out with a game. Let's get loose. Okay, we're all let's get we're loose. all super uptight about this. This is me Oops. meeting Gwendolyn for the first time ever.
2: Right. I, I was really going to tell it. you why she's here um, yeah. related to the question, but you'll get there. You'll see it. Just,
0: just enjoy the, the now. <laughs> enjoy the now of the, the moment. <laughs> Who asked this question?
2: Jill, Jillian.
0: Okay. All right, well, I'll uh, I'll have that queued up. I will play the question, but first, I want to play a game. Uh, you guys have been married approximately ninety minutes now, and like I think uh, I would like to know a little bit more about your relationship, and possibly educate you a bit more about your own relationship. So let's do a couple of the the most common, uh, just newlywed questions. Can I tell you a story about this first? Is it gross? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, go ahead. This is about um, a prior marriage that I had. <laughs> um, <laughs> Last time I played the newlywed game, I I was a newlywed yeah. uh, for the first time, and I was playing with two other couples, um, they were, they might've both been engaged or maybe one of the couples was married. Um, and within, I don't know, an hour of playing this game, every couple was ready to, (laughs) to, to break up. And in fact, two of us now, two of the couples now have divorced, uh, and, the last time I heard from the third one, their marriage was on the rocks. So Oh God. So let's have some fun and play this game. <laughs> I'm excited. This this Harbinger of Death game.
0: Um Gwendolyn, I would like to hear from you on this. I guess we can't really play this unless you guys like muted and left the room and all that. So let's just let's just hear. I, I'm I'm just going to um I'll close ask my eyes. one of you the question. <laughs>
2: <laughs> la, la, la 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 la.
0: You're gonna close your eyes on this podcast? I'm not even gonna look for this portion of the podcast. <laughs> no, we don't have to play it for real as much as like we'll just see if you disagree on a couple of these. Okay. Uh Gwendolyn, how did you first meet the good Reverend Joseph Smith?
3: So it was like the first day of PhD school and um
2: disagree it was like my third year (laughs) he's been it in a while
3: jill came into the ta office and he sat down beside me and he was like hey how's your semester going and i just unloaded lots of f words (laughs) and he was like i'm in love
0: (laughs) that did it for him Man, yeah, that's I will say, though, like, and I hope this doesn't disappoint you at all. That's exactly the same pickup line he used on me <laughs> when we first met. He came in, <laughs> sat down next to me in piano class. And he's like, hey, how's your semester going? <laughs> and I was like, well, it started an hour and a half ago. Uh, but <laughs> All right. Good. Joe, uh, is that how you remember it? Yeah, that's right. How many yeah. F-bombs in were you whenever you were like? This is this is the one. <laughs>
2: She's the one. Well, we have we have some debate about who fell in love first. We did actually meet one time prior to that though. Um Yeah. yeah. Do I sense tension? No? Already? No, no, there's there's agreement on it. I'll let Gwendolyn tell that story, I guess, because she I don't know, tells it more dramatically than I might. <laughs> but um Yeah, I think that's mostly what she said is mostly true, except that maybe she was a little more Heather Hills than I was right away.
3: So (laughs) when we met the first time, it was because um, I was visiting campus to see if I wanted to go there. And... uh, So we all know Joe is this really jolly guy, but he was in kind of a dark place in his life at that time. (laughs) And even to this day, never seen him so salty. (laughs) And he's like, you know, I'm asking questions, like, should I come here? And he's like, I knew within a week, it was the biggest mistake of my life.
2: (laughs) Which I still maintain about...
3: PhD school and like well how do you make ends meet and Joe's like I have a full-time job and school I have three kids they gotta eat and there was another friend on this same campus visit and afterwards like much later after we knew each other better that friend said that he was thinking of Joe do we not want her to come here what's happening <laughs> and uh when we met that time um I was thinking like it, it crossed my mind oh you know am I gonna end up with this guy and then I was like no ew.
0: this is it's it's pretty interesting to hear like it's almost like like the story you told first, Gwendolyn, is the first time Joe met you. And the story you're now telling is the first time you met Joe. And right. You met some, some screwed up people in some screwed up moments, it sounds like, and couldn't get enough of it, which is going to come up today, I'm guessing, in this conversation. <laughs> I think this is somewhat where we're headed um, with today's conversation. Let me do uh, one other question that I'm genuinely always curious about. Um, just because my own like purity culture, like dating and marriage and all of that makes it almost impossible for me to even answer this question. So I'm sort of curious as to like, what was a first date? Did you know it was a date? Um, (laughs) were your parents there? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, they were like,
2: what's the, uh, yeah, we went, um, <clears throat> up the incline at Mount Washington, you don't know what that is <laughs> there's in in pittsburgh there's a a mountain that where you can see over you know the the city and there's this old like elevator shaft thing that drives up the mountain uh like trolley car I don't know what it is okay it's called the incline so we we went up that and we walked around Mount Washington for. The evening.
0: That's excellent.
2: First date. Just, just like all the romantic comedies I ever
0: saw.
3: <laughs> and there was evening, <laughs> there was not morning, the first date.
0: <laughs> That's good. Um, uh, Joe, do you remember what you wore?
2: <laughs> if I had to guess, I would say a plaid shirt and jeans. If I had that's to dress, what that's you what wore. I said Yeah,
0: yeah. Do you what? What did you do? You remember what Gwendolyn wore?
2: Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> she, she wore a black long sleeve T shirt and jeans because that's her her outfit. That's what I wear every <laughs> day. It sounds like
0: both of you just have like a uniform. You're like one yeah. one outfit for life. People like that's great.
3: Mine's a little more uniformy than Joe's.
0: That's uh. I am was a uniform person until on, only here very, very recently have I been forced into costume. And that's what it really feels like to me. If I'm not wearing a blank T-shirt and some dark jeans, then I am in costume. Um, but I do have to get in costume <laughs> a bit for, for work, for various engagements and bookings and things. All right. Well, you know, I think as far as I can tell, and and I feel like I can tell pretty far from this, uh, this thing is destined for forever. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've heard all I need to hear. Um, and I'm very interested to get straight into this conversation today. We have a question that came in from a listener um, from Jillian, uh, or may- maybe just Jill. I got both names from her ear. I'm going to play that, and then we're just going to see where this conversation takes us.
2: I'd love to hear you guys talk about the intersection of faith and mental health. Um, for the longest time, I felt like there must be something wrong with me and my Christianity and the strength of my faith because I kept falling into anxiety and it finally took a non-Christian counselor to tell me that I needed to see my doctor to get on medication and to actually get a long-term therapist before I was finally able to conquer that anxiety. Um, The church tells
3: us that we need to pray harder, have more faith, read more self help books, and somehow God will fix
2: us. Um, But sometimes the problem is really in neurotransmitters and um, unhealthy beliefs. So, that would make a good subject of conversation for you guys. Thanks
3: for considering.
2: So, yeah, we invited Gwendolyn here today because, like, to respond to (laughs) that question specifically, um, because. She's not a mental health professional, um, but she is a professional <laughs> theologian and has some uh, some personal experience with uh, mental health stuff and talks about it a lot. in like as as a theologian, um, haven't done any writing specifically on it, but a lot in your like teaching and classroom experience. Um, so yeah, what? Uh, Hit
3: it. <laughs> well, first of all, I have to say, um, you know, I'm, I'm dreading the day when I, <laughs> when people say, like, ah, Joe Smith, he's such a great theologian. Did you know that his wife was a theologian in her own right?
1: <laughs>
3: mm. <laughs> like, this, this day is coming for me. So, um, so... I am uh, obsessive compulsive, and whenever I talk about this, I will start out by saying that doesn't mean that I'll put my pencils straight and then I'm fine. Um, you know, people like to go around saying, "Oh, I'm so OCD. I have to wipe my shoes when I come in from outside," but um, that's not actually what OCD is. So when people talk about, oh, I have to wet my shoes when I come in from inside, they mean that they're persnickety or they have preferences in their life. Um, but OCD is really about, um, you have uh, intrusive thoughts that just run on loop and they just run on loop forever. And so, uh, so that's the obsession part, these loops. And then the compulsions are weird, um, weird little actions that try to break in to the obsessive loops to make it stop. And the compulsions, you know, maybe work for a second or two, but then uh, the obsessions start going again. And uh, the diagnostic is, well, are you running these obsessive loops for an hour a day? And I've checked, like, this comes up once in a while with my therapist, how, oh, if it was only an hour a day, I'd be good to go. Um, But for me, and I think probably for most obsessive compulsives, it's just like, like you're, you're your whole life, birth to death, except when you're in a dreamless sleep, you're running these loops. I think that there was uh, uh, three months in undergrads, <laughs> like, like I'm 37 now and I remember this clearly, there were three months in undergrad when for some reason I was not Running these loops as much, and it's like the <laughs> the only time in my life I felt free. Um. So do remember, compulsions.
0: Do you remember why? <laughs> was there a particular reason why there was a a period? Yeah,
3: I was um, practicing centering prayer really diligently, and we can talk more about what that is. Um. But I find, like, that was an amazing strategy for the time, but I find that your brain adapts to whatever strategy mm-hmm. <laughs> works for a while, and so you have to do new things. Um, but anyway, the compulsions are what everybody knows about. You know, everybody's seen the TV show Monk, which as an obsessive compulsive, I think is great, Um. And everybody knows about, oh, I make my pencils straight. Uh, But compulsions are actually really weird. Um, And they change over time. Uh, I do a lot of reassurance seeking. So I might ask Joe, you know, 80 times in a row or something. Like one, two, literally 80 times in a row. Uh, Do you think I ran over that person with my car? do you think I ran over that person with my car? Do you think I ran over that person with my car? Um, I might call up my mom just to specifically do some reassur- reassurance seeking. Um, I also often say to myself, dude. <laughs> so like, <laughs> like I'll just be <laughs> sitting there minding my own beeswax. And then I'll say out loud, dude, And this might happen every 20 or 30 seconds It might, you know, I might be doing relatively okay and I'll only be every couple of minutes, dude, Joe, do you notice me saying this? (laughs)
2: Yeah,
3: obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, so it's really, it's a really distressing way to live. Uh, OCD is genetic. And, um, in the general population, I think the statistic is like one to 2% of people uh, are obsessive compulsive. But if you have, a, if you have one parent who's obsessive compulsive, you have a 60% chance um, of being obsessive compulsive yourself.
0: Well, I mean, we, we can circle back to any, any of that, you know, when it, if it comes up or, or whatever, but I, I kind of want to hear some of your perspective on, on what role spirituality has played in this and like, how, how has the church been helpful or harmful or like, do you have anything to speak to your relationship with that whole aspect of this? Has it been something that, that you've taken to, um, Pastors, priests, uh, spiritual leadership.
3: Okay, well, the news is not good.
0: <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't imagine. Here, wait a second. You don't have a, a focus on the family approved therapist? That's yeah, what right. Earlier? That's earlier? Right. Not...
3: <laughs> okay, so let me say a couple of things to this question asker. Or a couple of things uh, related to this question asker. So... Um, First of all, I can, I can only speak about OCD and even that I can really only speak about my own experience. Um, OCD is a type of anxiety disorder. So there will be, um, uh, correlations right between my experience and what other people with anxiety disorders report, but I would have no, uh, like, I don't think that you should extrapolate anything I say beyond that. So like, I could not speak to bipolar disorder, for example. I could not speak to schizophrenia, any of these sorts of things. Um, so I have experienced the same sorts of things that I think the question asker describes about, oh, you just need to pray harder and then you'll be fine. Um, or just a legion of um therapists who have said oh you have a self love problem oh you have a self esteem problem so um ocd is a therapy specialty and if you don't get somebody who's a specialist it actually makes the whole show worse um because they don't solve any of the problem, <clears throat> they say things like, "Oh, well, if you're worrying about this, then it means that you should be worrying about this." Normal people don't worry about running over other people in traffic if there's no reason to worry about it. So you probably did run over somebody in traffic. Um. So if you're, uh, if you're talking to, some, if if you have. OCD, and I would assume that the same is true for other anxiety disorders. If you're talking to somebody who doesn't have experience with this, that they can point to specifically, you should take everything they say and throw it in the fucking garbage. So that's step number one. Throw it in the fucking garbage. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, My therapist recently informed me, I've been with her for years, and she recently informed me that uh, kind of the mental scaffolding for OCD you're born with. So if your brain is organized in such a way that you will be obsessive and false, you are just always going to be that way. But the content of your OCD comes from early traumas. And so I don't know, I don't know what happened to my poor dad (laughs) that made him unable to eat saturated fats in his old age. Um, but the large majority of my obsessions are about, um, getting in trouble and, um, you know, getting in trouble with the law or getting in trouble at school or whatever, and also about going to hell. And, uh, you know, I grew up in the church of Christ and uh, there's a lot of talk of hell, a lot of gleeful talk about hell, (laughs) how many people are going to go there and how great it's going to be. And an excellent
0: um, uh, phrase there, by the way, just want to, just want to bookmark gleeful talk of hell. Sounds like you know, that's a good, that's a good book um, title. We
3: like we sing hymns while I converted to Catholicism, which is a choice I stand by, even though I'm now a conscientiously objecting Catholic, but we'd have to talk about that. Anyway, I converted to Catholicism about.
0: You have to be a Catholic to, to be a conscientiously objecting Catholic. So,
3: right. Right.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm with you.
3: Good. Um But anyway, I still often think about the Church of Christ as, quote, unquote, we. Um, Mm -hmm. So we sang hymns that were like, troublesome times are here. (laughs) And one of the lines in there is, many will meet their doom. Why are we singing this? This is a song that we sing in front of children. And like it's just it's just indicative it's this really upbeat like raring to go kind of song with the line many will meet their doom
1: yeah
3: and then there's the um unforgettable song that teenagers taunt each other with which is revelation revelation 21 8 21 8 wires burn in hell wires burn in hell burn 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 burn
0: joe did you know this song you didn't know this one i know i don't know i i never heard it until i thought my youth group made that up until this moment just now (laughs) i thought some kid in my youth group made that up wow yeah that's yeah right catchy
3: yeah so um you know how do you grow up normal i feel i feel like that's really the um the theme of this whole podcast right how do you grow up normal (laughs) um so so all these things are really the content of my um ocd i have definitely lied before in my life and um uh you know my my professional work tends to be about telling people that they're fine like you need to devote your life to social justice causes but in your existence and in your person like you're okay you know yeah um like you were made on purpose to end up okay that doesn't mean that you get to just like not care about things but but that's the end of the story right We'll we'll be okay joe did you raise your hand
2: <laughs> oh yeah drew and i signal to each other like i'm next when she gets done talking so you go <laughs> ahead joe is oh, also okay. staying
0: joe is staying muted for most of this just for the listener if you're noticing that He's just kind of nodding along and being here um, and letting this conversation happen. But uh, yeah, th- those sig- if he signals, he's talking to me.
2: <laughs> when I talk to Gwendolyn, she likes to play both parts of the conversation and I just sit there and drive quietly while she speaks for me. So I, I'm used to it.
1: <laughs>
3: it's a fun game. Joe <laughs> <laughs> hates it. I hate it when you do this. Well, I do. Well, that is what I was thinking. Um,
0: so good. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> where? Where were you? In?
3: Okay. So, um, so I was saying, you know, in my professional theological work, I have yeah. this. Um, what I do is to kind of reassure people that they're okay. Hey. and this is why I talk about OCD uh so much in my classroom because you know all these 20 year olds are just starting to realize that they have mental health issues um, but in my personal life the fact is that I'm often unglued and um it, you know I uh I can go some time without allowing myself to think about this, you know, day-to-day obsessions can, um, can just run on loop for a while. But, uh, if I stop to think about it, I'm really worried that, um, uh, like that God is really angry with me and that there has never been a moment that God was not, really angry with me and that when I die, I will go to hell and that will be a great day because God won't have to be angry with me anymore. And um, and my OCD will be gone because there won't be anything worse to be afraid of um and you know there's a lot of debate uh disability theology is not uh not really my specialty but there's a lot of debate about um you know in that great getting up morning will you still have your disability and i think that um Like, okay. So in my professional life, I don't even think about heaven and hell in these terms. I don't even really believe in hell. But in my personal life, like you can't, you can't just wish away the beliefs that you were given. Um, so in my personal life, I really wonder, um, you know, if I did end up in heaven and, uh, Like if the threat of hell and if the threat of sin and anger and hell were still held over me because my OCD wasn't wasn't taken away, um. Well, you know that would make heaven just as bad as here, <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know the so I mentioned uh. The theology of disability is not my specialty at all. But I think the people who, the people who talk about this have a really good point that you are a whole person as you are. And um, it's really ableist to suggest, uh, um, it's really ableist to suggest that in heaven whatever disability you had on earth will be wiped away
0: yeah um cuz then who but, would you be who who would actually be there is that well the, is that the question you're kind of getting at like who would i be if if this were
3: well yes that but also like like let's say that you were um Uh, let's say that you lost your legs um, in an accident when you were really, really young. So your whole life, your whole memory is you have not had legs. Mm -hmm. Well, in heaven, will you have legs or will you not have legs? And if you have legs in heaven, does that mean that you were deficient all this time that you were on earth? Mm -hmm um joe is this like a fair summary of that discourse
2: yeah i think that's right i wanted to flag that to ask you about um because you've you have very much not liked that as a way of thinking about your own you know eternal destiny whatever that might mean um but yeah i think that's that's pretty standard for disability theology to see wholeness as uh, to see the problem of disabilities as a social problem and i think this is probably really the discourse that i've seen most often is talked about in terms of um, physical disabilities right so the problem yeah. is the problem is we've created a world where um, <clears throat> where people like me and you uh, can get around, right? We we created buildings with stairs up to them, which are perfect for people with like two working legs. Um, we haven't created a world that's perfect for people who get around un- in other ways. And so the problem is social, not, not physical. Um, it's not a deficient body. It's a deficient mm-hmm. society. And so what's going to happen in heaven is a, is a fixed society, not, not fixed persons because we're already created the way that God wanted us. But that's different from the way that you describe your experience. So yeah, I was, I'm interested in hearing about that.
3: Yeah. So I don't, it's, uh, it's hard to even come across real theological work about mental illness. Uh, but I will say for myself that if it's a choice between <laughs> just <laughs> fucking right off to hell or going to heaven and having like just having the threat of hell still held over me because this is how my brain is built.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, that's a toss up. Um,
0: well, I feel like we've we've come into the, uh, <clears throat> I don't want to throw this off the off the rails too much, but like I feel like Joe and I have talked about heaven and hell a bit where, Very um, widely accepted uh, doctrines and beliefs about heaven and hell are they basically require heavenly lobotomies like there there has to be some kind like I can't I'm, I'm not talking about disabilities here I'm talking like I, I can't party in the attic if i know that god is torturing people in the basement right so yeah right who used to, who people who were part of forming me people that i would consider to be part of my identity part of what I, who i am and what i am are wiped from my memory like that's necessary then who am i in heaven who what's left of me i will not be the same person and i think the same would have to be true of of what you're di- what you're discussing here. If you wipe away this person, this part of my person, then, well, who is that? What's what's left? Like heaven requires some level of lobotomy. Heaven requires some level, yeah, of, like wiping the slate of my soul, my my, my psyche, like whatever I am, clean. Um, and i think you know what joe just said is really compelling to me like a really an idea of no it a fixed society a uh, you guys hear children screaming in the background of my <laughs> anyway so where where were you where were you about to head gwendolyn
3: so so this this idea of a heavenly lobotomy well that's really interesting because I'm, I'm kind of on the other side of it which is like like please Jesus change the terms of who I am mm. somehow because this is unbearable um you know
2: yeah yeah I hear that that's So I wanted to circle back to something else that you said about um, your the difference between the way you conceive of heaven and hell, for instance, in your professional life and your personal life, particularly your personal experience with OCD. Um, like, you know, I, I knew you first as a professional theologian for like a minute right As as a professional theologian um and none of us believe in hell there's just i mean unless you go to southern baptist seminary there's just not a professional theologian out there that that believes in hell in the kind of way that um you know that gets talked about in churches a lot and stuff uh and so and we had maybe talked about it but I was certain that you didn't and I remember the first time I was in Beckley. I was visiting my parents you weren't with me um but you called me like in tears about um I'm going to go to hell and like at the time I didn't know how this stuff worked I've <laughs> I've learned a little bit more about how to like um <laughs> navigate through it's, OCD episodes It's all episodes.
3: like sheep right
2: <laughs> right um so you know i was trying to like say well you know hell's not real <laughs> and like have these kinds of rationality in
3: ohio that begs to differ joe
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's
3: not it's on 71 between columbus and cincinnati it's so famous it's just huge hell is real and that was on my commute to college so i've driven past it like a nine million times hell is real
0: are you sure those people are making some sort of spiritual afterlife statement and not just a statement about rural ohio
3: <laughs> you know that's a that's an interesting point
0: <laughs> i'm sorry are you from rural ohio um
3: not that kind of rural ohio
0: <laughs> i spent a lot of time driving growing. those okay good
2: gotcha. <laughs> the different. The different rural,
0: rural Ohio, the other part. <laughs> the other one. I spent a lot of time driving through rural Ohio in college. I, I went to school right on the edge of uh, where Kentucky, West Virginia, and Ohio meet, and then we would drive up to Columbus or oh, okay. for concerts and stuff like that. And the big city. If I saw a sign, yeah, if I saw a sign that said "hell is real," I would, you know, kind of look around right there and say, "Yeah, I would think so." <laughs> but
2: like, how do you how do you experience that i still don't know that i understand how you experience the difference between like on the one hand understanding that hell is this theological construct that we you know made up to scare children into into being good like santa claus hell's basically santa claus uh and then also you become being the one of those really frightened
0: people. Sorry, I was just interjecting that Santa Claus only, instead of giving you lumps of coal, you are the coal. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a step further. You, know, I, you may need to phrase that question again, unless you, you got it, Gwendolyn.
3: So, um, okay. So there's there's really a distinction between... um the OCD voice and perhaps what you would call the executive voice in your head. So, um, the OCD voice is very loud and very insistent. Uh, you know, did you run over somebody? 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 somebody?" But the executive voice is like, no i was there it's fine but also like it's very (laughs) the executive voice is very rational and logical and soft spoken no i was there you didn't run over anybody well you can like if the ocd voice is yelling Mm -hmm. and you know the executive voice knows what's up but it's just shut out a lot of the time so My professional life is done from this kind of executive part of my brain, right? The part of my brain where physics works and um, people are real and uh, time is real and there's a sequence of events and order and all that. So that's where my professional theology is. But uh, my personal personal theology uh well you couldn't even call it theology really my my personal yelling at myself about god comes from this ocd part of my brain that can get so loud that i can't get around it um yeah and like that
0: distinction is is really that was really profound way of saying it it's not a I think <laughs> that it's not a theology that, that other side, like when I'm doing theology, cause I can just speak from my own experience here. Like when I'm doing theology, I don't believe in hell either. I've I see no, um, no reason for embracing this whatsoever. I even consider, I even consider as a teacher and preacher of the Bible, it to be completely irreconcilable with the nature of what the Bible teaches Jesus to be. I'm like, you can't call that Christian. It doesn't even make sense to me um in any linear rational way um but you know i wrote i, I wrote down i was out on a, a run yesterday and I, I for whatever reason was contemplating a lot of this and and even trying to think about where i thought this conversation might go but i wrote down that in my earlier life i felt the most peace and relief when i doubted what I believed and now I'm at a place in my life where the opposite is true where I feel the most peace and relief whenever the executive portion of my brain when when the part of me that does theology is in charge I'm I feel total peace and relief and God is love and that love is something that I'm good with not God is love and he's in his version of love is abusive and and it sucks like he's really bad at love um Now I'm at a point in my life where I'm only experiencing anxiety about the afterlife or whatever, whenever I doubt my actual beliefs, (laughs) Um, as opposed to only ever feeling peace when I.
2: Yeah, isn't it sometimes like, um, like phantom beliefs, the way that like somebody with an amputated limb has phantom pains in their, (laughs) in their non-existent limb. It's like, I definitely don't believe that. And yet I'm also afraid of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, I think that's true, even of neurotypical people. Uh, I mean, certainly true of me. But we don't have perhaps the structures in our brain that make those so loud that the executive part of it, your brain, like the part of the part of your brain that's already deconstructed or already like whatever we want to call that, ha- had gone through the great repentance as we've been calling it. Maybe. Oh, I, <laughs> that episode isn't out yet. Uh, anyway um
0: like we continue to we continue to screw with everyone's space time continuum.
2: <laughs> yeah
3: here here on crisis of faith time isn't real
2: <laughs> but like you know even even for even beliefs that you've done away with that you've thrown in the trash um they're still in your body in some way right and they still come back to haunt you yeah. um even even if you don't have uh, some sort of neurosis that makes that overwhelming, it's still real and it's still there. So, I I wonder. I mean, you talked about a little bit how the church gave you the 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 content of your um, obsessions, your loops. What about, how has um, the church and or spirituality, I imagine that those are, it's going to be different. <laughs> those are
3: distinct.
2: <laughs> um, how, how have they like interacted with, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Like, so you have OCD, right? And you've been given the content by, by church theology. Um, but like, how does the church, does the church help? It's going to church, uh, make things better. Like how how does this all work? You said you said um, centering prayer was really helpful at one point in time. Like how does the church and and spirituality interact with uh, your mental health condition?
3: So, um, okay. So I said that that uh, I'm Catholic now, but I'm a conscientiously objecting Catholic. Well, that's true. So I haven't, I haven't gone to mass in uh, five years, maybe. And uh, <laughs> we, we joke about before the pedophilia scandal, um, I was just a lapsed Catholic and now I'm a conscientiously objecting Catholic. Um, but Uh, like I, I consider myself to be very devout, uh, but I just can't, even if, even if I could be assured that, um, the priest, uh, was not himself a pedophile or complicit in, uh, the abuse of children, uh, Which, you know, would be a big statement, uh, especially here in the diocese of Pittsburgh. Um, you might get some <laughs> get some uh, hate mail about that, but I stand by that statement as a as a theologian. No
2: Catholics listening to this show.
3: <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's good. Uh, even if you could be assured that the priest was not uh, abusing children or complicit in their abuse. Um, I personally still cannot go to mass because you just, you don't know what might, uh, what might happen there. You don't know what might be preached on. And, uh, if I can't go to mass, then I certainly can't go to other church services because mass is really, um, probably the most predictable of any imaginable church services um okay so never darken the door of a church except the one I work at (laughs) um (laughs) I just do the paperwork (laughs) um
2: hold on pause for one second I I just said that there are no Catholics listening to this show and that might not be true. And if you are Catholic and listen to the show, we love you very much. And I'm so glad that you're here. We don't know why you care, but thank you so much for being here. All right. That's all keep going.
3: Okay. Well, and if you're Catholic and you send hate mail to Joe and Drew, please put attention Gwendolyn and then I will call you up and we can talk about it until we all feel better. <laughs>
0: um, I wanted to, so I've, i flagged part of the, and I think it, I think it works here. Part of the question that Joe actually posed there. Um, that could make for a really good conversation for crisis of faith in the future as well. But part of the question that you asked initially, Joe, was, does going to church make things better for you? And I, <laughs> we, Gwendolyn and I both, I've discovered, have started to consider you one of the hardened rationalists of our lives. Um, I, I find that, sh- that question, I'm really glad you asked it. I, I like that question. I find the question very challenging and flawed at its core, though, because I, as someone who has been a part of church all my life and is in a bit of a very strange transition as, in terms of my relationship with church, if I consider that question, does going to church make it better? And I think about the people who have been a part of the church for my life, most of us would say, what do you mean? Does it make anything better? Like, that's not what it's for. That's not why we do it. We don't do it because it makes our lives better, even though that's what most church slogans are. That's even like the slogan of the church that we planted was like um, essentially asking the question, you know, do you want a better life? Because we believe Jesus promises one. Um, That's just not the role that it's played. It's been going to church in America in particular. And I think it's every bit as true in Catholicism, if not more. It's sort of a, a tribal, like loyal Thing it's a loyalty question. If I ask my parents, like, does going to church make it better? Their response is very likely going to be, Well, that's not why we do it. Um, we do it because we have a duty, um, to this tribe somehow. And I almost wonder, like, what role does that play in the trauma of it all? What role does that play? Like, when we're when none of us are stopping to ask the question, Is this thing that I do? religiously, uh, pun very much intended, um, this thing that I do religiously, does it make my life better? When we're not asking that question, then we're, not, we're, not, we're also not asking a lot of other questions about what kind of role this is playing in our lives. We're, we're actively participating in something that we know doesn't make our life better or that we wouldn't even consider it that way. Um, we're, we're opting to, choosing to. And so we're also hardly noticing the ways that it may be making it worse.
3: Yeah. Oh, that's a thinker. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Sorry to throw something out that just <laughs> like shuts a door on things.
3: Um. Yeah. That's a good point. Like growing up, I just, I certainly didn't have a choice whether I was going to go to church or not. And this was true, you know, all the way up until I left for college. Um it, you know, it's not like like, oh, you're carried along until you can stay home by yourself for an hour.
1: Yeah. It's
3: uh no, you have to be there. And it doesn't matter how you feel about it.
0: Hmm. And that's yeah. I mean I, th- does that get get to another part of the question that was asked initially from Jill like if we're sort of pulled into this and and forced to like don't ask don't ask why don't ask what you know what good this does for you it's not about that
3: right and then um you know another part of Jill's question was um Another part of her statement was, uh, "There's there's built-in messaging about this should make you feel good, right?" So another atrocious song I grew up with, uh, "Blue Skies and Rainbows." This is a CFC thing. Joe, did you have that one?
2: <clears throat> no, didn't have that one. But we had, um, um. Upright, something, what is it? Something, something upright, downright, happy all the time. I'm in. Love, oh, yeah, upright, right. Upright, downright, happy all the time. Yeah. Right.
3: Well, this Blue Skies and Rainbows is uh one of the first songs that you learn as a kid, and it's, uh you know, it stays with you the whole time. And, um, uh, blue skies and rainbows and sunbeams from heaven are what I can see when the Lord is living in me. Well, like fucking excuse me, <laughs> like that's not what's in my brain. Thank you. <laughs> um.
1: Yeah. Well, I, and how
3: how
0: strange? Like we, we've you know we've we've kind of gone into the the forays of this heaven and hell uh, conversation, and like how how strange that that is. Like that's the songs we're singing, while also celebrating the the doom. Yeah, right. of of humanity, like most of humanity. Let's let's be really honest. Statistically, most people who have ever lived and died already, and most people, if they all, if 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 the world ended today, most of them. And I'm in right, out right, up right, down right, (laughs) happy all the time. Right, Right. it's not me, it's them.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So um I, I want to offer to Jill and to um, you know everybody else who struggles with uh, being okay uh, an analogy like a theological analogy that I use a lot in class when we talk about, well, you know, what is God in relationship to us? Because we always think that God is, God is the same as us, just bigger and more powerful. And I mean, perhaps there's perhaps there's some reason to think of this. Uh, you know, there's uh, I think the Incarnation shows that there's an inherent compatibility between God and us. But um, but I think I think that if you take this inherent compatibility too far, then you get into some really difficult uh, theological hot water. Namely, this idea that we have had control over our lives this entire time, and that every sin that we've ever sinned has been a conscious decision that we consciously need to repent about, and, um, you know, that God will justly punish us for the decisions that we make. Well, I would like to offer, um, you know, my fellow, anxious people, a theological analogy, which is, it's very simple in its uh, formulation. So we people live with family dogs all the time and those dogs are part of the family and we love them and they love us. Um, and we understand each other and we know how to live and how to be happy with each other. Um, But the dog messes up and the dog, you know, misunderstands things and the dog poops where it shouldn't and all that, but we still love the dog, right? So I would suggest to my fellow anxious people that as we read the Bible, that we think of the relationship between God and people as analogous to the relationship between humans and family dogs, uh, the dogs, you know, are adults of their species, but they have to be taken care of. They can be held responsible a little bit for, like, micro decisions that they make, but, um, you know, they don't go to college, they don't hold a job, they don't have the same amount of power that humans do. And I think that this is helpful uh, if we anxious people Want to want to acknowledge God in our lives at all? If we say that we people can have this amount of dependable ongoing grace for our dogs who do weird, gross things, well, God can have the same amount of dependable ongoing grace for us, even though we do weird, gross things, uh, which you know to us seem just really dramatic and really intentional and really um like like fully mature in our depravity right but i would suggest that our fully mature depravity is still not um it's it's still not adultly powerful uh from the view of god right it's kind
2: of it's like- not
3: like yeah, go ahead, Joe.
2: Like what Jesus says, who among you, when your dog shits on the rug, will burn him in hell for all of eternity? Precisely. And how much more then will your heavenly father give to you good gifts?
3: <laughs> you know, uh, I think that this is, I think that this is especially helpful because nobody would say that they let their dog, no good dog owner would, say that they let their dog just have the run of the house with no consequences but the consequences for a dog are appropriate to a dog and they don't last forever you know yeah. and like it's you know if we extend this further we in the modern world at least uh it was different in the ancient world not important Uh, we have expectations for how people should treat their dog, right? We think that this, uh, that if you're a dog owner, you should love the dog. And this is how you take care of a dog properly. And if you're a person who kicks dogs, well, God help you, you're fucking depraved, you know? So if, so if we say that, you know, God loves us the way we love the family dog, this is a really affirmative statement. Yeah. And, and um, if, this is the other important aspect. If we say that we love our family dog more than God, in a more loving way than God loves us, then like, why are we into this God at all? <laughs>
0: Why are we even interested in this relationship? That's so good. Um, Gwendolyn, I'm so grateful for this. Um, I had no idea where this was going, and I'm so glad I didn't, because um, it turned into something that was, I hope was really useful to people. It was certainly useful to me, educational to me. Um, we uh, Are you working on anything you'd like to promote here? You got anything you're, uh, anything you're selling? Any big projects you want people to know about?
3: Well, you know, it would be nice if I did (laughs) just working (laughs) on my dissertation.
0: All right. Well, we look forward to reading that as much as we've read every other dissertation that any of you PhD people have ever written. (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) Thanks for being a part of this. We'll probably hear from you again on this show. I'm sure.
3: I love you. (laughs) Love you, Joe.
1: Thanks, Joe. Love you, too. (laughs)
3: All right. Later, guys.
1: See ya. Could you answer a question that no one can explain? Well, I can check the internet if that's what you want. I mean, I checked once, but maybe I'll look again. But it won't mean a thing because the options all are pretty out there. If God made a dude and somehow made a gal out of that dude, is that really weirder than if he just found her? Yeah.